Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. What are we learning about today? Oh, well, today we're going to talk about something I never try to say, the worst, right? We're going to talk about terrible shooting that happened here in the United States at a Marjorie Stoneman Douglas School in Parkland, Florida on Valentine's Day, which makes it even more sad. It happened several years ago in 2018. And one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about it today is because when people talk about justice, this is 2022, if I can timestamp this. And the shooter in this case is just now being sentenced. So that's over four years of just waiting around. Why so long? Yeah, I think that's a fair question, but it takes a long time to gather information accurately. A lot of times I hear people say, we know who did it. He pled guilty, put him in jail, give him the death penalty. But that isn't the way our justice system works. Even if they plead guilty, the state still has to show that there really is evidence that they did the crime because you don't want somebody to plead guilty because they were coerced. And then what that also helps with is how and what kind of sentence that individual gets. We're actually starting at the end point right now. We're talking about the sentencing. That's currently what's happened. So this shooter was actually caught very swiftly after the incident happened and then He pled guilty, so is being sentenced currently at the moment. And in a capital murder case in the state of Florida, you could get the death penalty or you could get life in prison. So that's where we're at at the moment. We're currently looking at the sentencing, but let's rewind the clock back to the 14th of February, 2018. What we have is a 19-year-old man who had gone to this school And on February 14th, he was seen climbing out of an Uber. He was carrying a backpack and another bag with him, a duffel bag, maybe 20 minutes, 40 minutes before school was about to get out. And Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School is a big school. There are several buildings on campus and the subject entered building 12 that has 900 students and 30 classrooms in it. There were campus monitors who were riding around in golf carts, unarmed, but monitors. This was such a tragedy that there was so much evidence collected afterwards, including video coverage of him, the CCTV cameras, him getting out of the Uber, coming towards the school. And one of the school monitors who was in a golf cart said he saw him get out and he saw him walking very deliberately. And he said, oh, that's that kid. You know, that kid is trouble. So the monitor, who was also a coach, knew right away who it was. Did he clock the gun? He didn't have the gun out. He had it in a duffel bag. Okay. 
But he saw the subject walking very aggressively towards this building 12 at a time when classes were in. So it was very visible that this individual had gotten out of a car, out of his Uber ride and was at the school. Probably it would be safe to assume if you're a parent or a monitor, perhaps up to no good. So the first thing that happened that I think is something to consider is when the school monitor was interviewed after the fact, a couple of them, they radioed between them. They weren't armed and they radioed and said, hey, this troublemaker is here and he needs going in this direction. But they didn't call out what they call a code red at the school. They didn't put the school on notice that there was potentially a dangerous person on campus. They had a fire drill earlier in the day. You know, they, the monitors were there and there was a school resource officer on campus at the time. The monitors never called a code red. And when one of the monitors saw him enter building 12 and then heard gunshots, he went and secured himself safely in a room because he said that's what he was trained to do. He secured himself safely in a room, far from the building or? In another building. And what was the point of that? Because he said, I was taught that when things are dangerous, your job is to lock down. And then he also said in an early interview that I didn't call for emergency services right away. Because I was taught that I'm only to call 911 if I actually see. That sounds really odd. Yes. There's many opportunities missed in in this story of the Parkland shooting, as it's come to be known. And I mention this here, not to say this is more egregious than any other or an opportunity missed that's different than another, but understand that there are so many. This is, if nothing, an episode to say, look at how many opportunities were missed along the ways by so many people. Let me give you the volume of time we talk about. I know you've been on holiday, so you probably don't remember this, but when a shooting occurs in the FBI's initial research on active shooters, how long do they take? It's not a maths podcast, Catherine, but I want to say, I think five minutes is the number that's in my head that, is it 50% of shooting? 70%. 70%. And in five minutes or less, half of those... And then two minutes or less. Every second is so critical, right? Every second is so critical. Mm -hmm. So in this case, I'm going to tell you beginning to end, the shooter was active for six minutes and the people who were killed were killed in a four minute period. Wow. Gosh, that's fast. So it really tells you every second counts. This is probably not a great thing to say, but this morning I was out requalifying for my license to carry a weapon. And when you do that, it's a time test and you have to discharge six rounds in six seconds. That's a handgun. I think it's very difficult for people who've never handled handguns or rifles or semi-automatic rifles or even shotguns to appreciate how many rounds can be discharged, how fast. Well, the thing that you haven't said here is how many people were actually shot in that time frame. Yeah, there were so many. There were 17 people killed. Wow. And I'll tell you that 17, there were 15 killed at Columbine. Now, certainly we've had other shootings that have high numbers of deaths, but I don't think it's a numbers game. I know a lot of people say, oh, that's the worst shooting. You know, every shooting is the worst shooting. He was using an AR-15 style weapon, 19 years old, right? Mm -hmm. 19 years old with an interesting history. And he got off about 150 rounds in the time that he was in building 12. I can't even comprehend that in that time frame. 
I honestly can't. I mean, the amount of violence that can happen in 150 rounds, if he had been, you know, in a different position, yeah, there have been twice as many dead, three times mm. as many dead. People who are listening to this who live in Florida know the story certainly better than everybody else. But this uh, became quite a rallying cry because uh, survivors of the Parkland shooting became a group of very politically astute students who came to Washington Mm -hmm. and said, this is going to end. We're going to find ways to change the laws that create this kind of gun violence. When this shooter got out of the Uber and came towards the school, there's a long leeway and you could see from the camera way across the lawn and he comes walking up the sidewalk and he walks and walks. And the guy in the golf cart actually heads in his direction initially. And then he peels away. And he says later he did that because he didn't know whether he would be in danger because he kind of knew this kid was trouble and he didn't have a weapon himself. So the 19-year-old gets to building 12, which was three stories tall. And very quickly, he takes this AR-15 style weapon out of his duffel bag and outside witnesses say they hear shots almost immediately. And he puts it together and he begins firing. He kills three students in a hallway uh, almost immediately. And then he begins to walk to the doorways of these closed classroom doors. So it was good that the school had closed classroom doors. The doors had glass panels on them that were not huge, but glass panels on them. And he shoots through the classroom door windows oh my goodness. indiscriminately into the classrooms. And the doors and, and locked? I believe they were all locked. I can't account for every single one of them. Okay. I don't think it was a question of him trying the doors. He just right. begins, he's in the hallway and he begins firing through the doors. He doesn't want to lose his location. He shoots a few people. He fires through windows and he is still in the forward area of building 12 where he has come in. This is what we believe. You know, there's any way to actually prove it, but I think the work that was done by the state in the after action, when he first shoots, the weapon itself it emits a lot of fumes. And the fumes themselves went up and they believe set off the fire alarm. And okay. so suddenly there is a loud fire alarm going off in the building in addition to everything else. And they had just had a fire drill earlier in the day. So mm-hmm. kids were probably. Some of them thinking, oh, we're doing this again. But he shoots in the hallway, kills three, shoots through windows, kills another six. And, you know, these are, you know, closed classroom doors, but he manages to shoot through there. And as he's shooting, he kills six in the classroom. He is spraying shots. So there are 13 other people in these classrooms who are also wounded. And then he kills two uh, staff members who are standing at a stairway. And then he runs upstairs to the second floor and he fires into a couple more classrooms. Doesn't want to lose his advantage. He doesn't hurt anybody there. He doesn't know that because he doesn't know because he's just shooting. So then he runs back up to the third floor. And by then the kids are exiting the classrooms because they hear a fire alarm going off. That's what I was thinking because they wouldn't have heard the shots necessarily from the first floor. In fact, that's exactly what some of them said is we didn't hear the shots, but we heard the fire alarm. Yeah. And this whole idea of do you pull a fire alarm and don't you, and I've said before, anybody who's our loyal listener would know, there is no empirical evidence that tells us whether it's a good idea or not. And I know that many who discourage that, sometimes it's people who say, look, you're giving the shooter what he wants, a bunch of people in the hallway. But I also know that when you pull a fire alarm, we've been in situations where you know we've seen fire alarms 
that have been pulled and buildings were emptied and then people aren't available to get shot. So, you know, pluses and minuses. But by the time he gets to the third floor, he's still rocking and rolling. They've got kids in the hallways. He kills five students and a staff member upstairs on the third floor. And then he goes to a teacher's lounge and he's thinking, now I'll just, here's my next big plan. I'm going to become a sniper because he had done searches for lots of different things. And one of them was being a sniper. So he goes into the teacher's lounge and he tries to use his weapon to break the window, failing to understand that he's in a building in a state that has hurricanes and the windows are hurricane strength. Because presumably there's chaos outside the building now as well. Absolutely. There's chaos outside the building and not just this building, but the other buildings. And it appears that the shooter's thinking, now I'm going to bust out this window in the teacher's lounge and I'm going to shoot down at people randomly. And he's got the ammunition with him. He's got the ability to do that. But the problem is that he hasn't been able to get through the window. And I think this is speculation on my part, but we believe his gun jammed. And it was probably because he was banging it against the window. So he drops this rifle uh, up on the third floor and he becomes a student and he mingles in with the students. No way. Yeah. Oh my goodness. He just starts walking. Things are chaotic. Does anyone clock that? Nope. And has he got any weapons at this stage or he only walked in with the one gun? Whatever he had with him, there was nothing else ever seen again. Just that one weapon. So how far does he get? He leaves the campus, (gasps) walks, walks out with the other kids, walks down to a sandwich shop and gets a Coke to drink. Wow. I'm just gobsmacked at that. Yeah. He walks to a McDonald's. The shooting occurs at 220-ish, just before 220 or something like that. And they do actually call a lockdown eventually at the school, but it's after the shooting has started. By 2.45, he's walking down to get a Coca-Cola. And he walks from there to a McDonald's, sits down in a McDonald's for a while next to somebody, tries to talk somebody into giving him a ride. Turns out that the person he was trying to talk into it had a sister at the school. Kind of creepy, right? Kind of creepy. Yeah. Was he walking past law enforcement at that stage? Had they arrived on the scene when he's walking out of the building? Hundreds of law enforcement were there in EMS. And it was just chaotic, right? I mean, it never fails to astound me that somebody can do this in four minutes. He's got to get up three stories for Mm -hmm. a start. He's making all those decisions in terms of trying to blow out a window. Do you think that would have been his end plan the whole time to leave the building like that? Was that premeditated? I think that unfortunately what we have, especially with the people who we've seen in the last handful of years, different than we had in the 20 years before, is they're talking to each other online on Mm. sites that talk about, I want to be a school shooter. And they see how other people did what other people planned for and what other people were doing. And I think that it's possible that he did some contingency planning and, you know, we have a live shooter, so we'll know more in time. But I also know that this is a very arrogant young man who will say anything to become famous. Mm. So whatever he might say, he was thinking, It'll sound way more sophisticated than it probably really was. I think when the gun jammed, he couldn't even kill himself. And we know a lot of these guys do kill themselves, right? But he just takes off with the students, stops at McDonald's for a few minutes, tries to talk somebody into giving him a ride. It doesn't happen. And so he is walking on his own and the police are on high alert. And about an hour plus after the shooting, he's seen walking on the street and the police pick him up. Does he resist? Nope. No, not really. No, nope. he's handcuffed, com- pretty compliant, lanes of breathing problems, is taken to the hospital just for a check. The 
hospital says, yeah, he doesn't have any breathing problems. And they put him back in a police car and they take him back and book him. And he's been in custody ever since. Hey, fellow true crime aficionados. I've stumbled upon the ultimate hidden gem, Dakota Spotlight by James Wollner. It's a revelation. Picture this, thoroughly researched, original, and peppered with real interviews. No sensationalism here, just gripping storytelling with heart. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll always want more. So cozy up and join me on the edge of your seat. Trust me, this podcast is the real deal. Start with the Mandan murders and prepare to be hooked. Let's uncover this treasure together. Listen to Dakota Spotlight. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything, from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. We touched on at the beginning moments along the way that there could have been opportunities to stop this happening. Where do you think we could have stopped this from happening in the first place? Just as far as the actual incident itself, there was a lot of criticism. And of course, it's kind of easy to criticize after the fact, but there was criticism about the delay in calling for code red, they call it there, but a lockdown of the facility. It was a delay in notifying faculty and staff and students. But also, once the shooting started, there was a criticism that the emergency medical services, the ambulance people weren't allowed in the building because they didn't know where the shooter was. Okay. So the only medical personnel who were allowed in the building at that moment were the SWAT team members who were in there working in the building. And there was a criticism that they should have allowed those individuals in because as we've learned, it takes moments for people to bleed out from a bullet wound. There were a lot of things that in those couple of moments that might have maybe prevented some deaths for different reasons once the shooter was on campus. So I just wanted to isolate those a little bit just to make that clear. Given the fact that, like I said, 30 classrooms, 900 estimated students in the building at the time, that was just a huge amount of potential for loss of life. The listeners know I'm retired FBI, and it would be inappropriate for me to not first bring up the fact that the FBI had received a tip about this individual and and how they handled that tip. And this was a call in from somebody who said, this person is very dangerous. I think this person is going to do something terrible. I don't want this on my conscience. This young kid has done a lot of bad things in his life. 
he's, you know, it's like a ticking time bomb waiting to happen. And this is who he is. This is where he lives. This is where he goes to school. He's talked about being a school shooter. So yeah, a lot red of flags. information, red flags, right? This information comes into the FBI tip line. And whoever evaluates that information does not pass it on to our Florida office. Wow. Now, I think that's everybody's nightmare. worst fear, isn't it? Right. It's I hear like, that a lot. And how do you get the trust back after that? Right. I hear people say, and it's not just about the FBI, right? No. It's about, you know, reporting to schools or reporting to law enforcement. And I hear people say, I've reported things and nothing gets done about it. And I've heard people say, I don't know what they can do, even if they report it. This kid's been trouble his whole life. And that creates this kind of bottleneck of it gets to law enforcement and they don't do anything about it. Now, in this case, here's the most important thing for law enforcement, including the FBI. The FBI, and I don't know because I can't be in the mind of the person who made the decision at the FBI to do this, but I can tell you that person lost that job. There were others that were moved around. And in the FBI's case, they also changed their protocols for all the entire tip line. They changed their protocols and procedures, feeling that if one person was able to make that decision, that's a bad process. That's a bad protocol. Let's remove as much human error as we can. So are you saying now that that process has been tightened up in a way that we should feel like now that we do give a tip, it's going to go somewhere? Oh, yes. Four years ago, it was changed. Four years ago after this shooting, after this information was discovered in the FBI files. Every time a shooting happens, everybody looks into their own files to see if they know that shooter, that he's had contact with law enforcement or any other first responders. And this shooter was identified as somebody who there was information in an FBI file about him. And this is what had happened. It had come into the tip line. It had pretty specific information that was absolutely the kind of information you should have passed on to local police. And it wasn't passed on to local police. How far before the incident did the tip come in? It was within months. Okay. You know, it was like within the year before, I would say, within the year before. And at the time when that information came out about the FBI, they absolutely said publicly, we have this information on the subject in our file. This is what was done with it. This is how we've changed our protocols and procedures. So that will never happen again. We hope that will never happen again. I think they tried to make that decision and to make it publicly that they were going to tighten up, as you said, as you called it, the procedures. So I wanted Mm -hmm. to be frank about that. That was a unforced error, as we would call it, that may or may not have made a difference. And that's the problem with all of these things is how do you know? Because I'm going to add a couple of other facts. The federal government lawsuit, there was a $125 million settlement. Paid to the families. Families and survivors, victims, family survivors. And that was for the FBI's tip line era. Mm -hmm. Because the information had come in that he had a desire to kill people and that he was acting erratically. He had been making posts on social media and the investigators did not pass that information on to our Florida office. And if one of our offices in Florida had received that information, they would have called the Broward County Sheriff's Office and said, we got this information on our tip line. So what adds to the hurt and everything else is that, in fact, the same caller to our tip line called the Broward County tip line and gave all this information to them directly. Wow. So it got to the end point regardless of going through the FBI. But tell me, did they ring the FBI first or did they ring Broward County first? 
you know, it was all kind of the same time. So this person doubled down and thought, I'm going to do the FBI and Broward County. Mm-hmm. What happened with the information that went to Broward County? That would be the $25 million lawsuit for the 52 uh, wow. named survivors and victims. So in all, there were 52 of 53 filed lawsuits and received this $25 million. And then the federal government, always a deeper pocket, $125 million. So when people say shootings don't cost, Yes, they, they do. do. They cost not only in lives, they cost in dollars. They cost all of us. They impact all of us because that's the money that's not going into improved school mental health support, educational right. programs, because those are monies going into lawsuits. And there were so many lawsuits filed as there always are. And they're based on, in many cases, legal theory is foreseeability. It was mm. foreseeable. And it wasn't just the Broward County Sheriff's Office. It was also the school system itself, because there were so many instances during this kid's life in school when there was contact with people who maybe should have, could have. And I think this really brings to the table the biggest struggle when we talk about doing preventive work is, okay, so you knew that. So what would you have done? So when we talk about the uh, subject a little bit, keep that in mind. So what would you have done with that information and how could it ultimately have changed things? So let's talk about this guy. Our 19-year-old was born to a cocaine and alcohol-addicted mother who died a few months after the Parkland shooting of cancer. But before that, she was a pretty raging alcoholic and drug addict. Mm -hmm. And this kid and his brother were given up for adoption and adopted by a woman who counselors said later seemed to be overwhelmed and unable to control this shooter. Doesn't sound like it's a great start, does it? No, so definitely not. Now, the reason that we know all of these things is because this kid came out of an adopted situation. There were home checks and behavioral health people who checked on these two kids and talked to this mother and went to the home for home visits. You've got a safety net there. Mm -hmm. It's an extra barrier that wouldn't normally be there. Absolutely. And in most cases, definitely not. So when at his sentencing, this case manager for his mental health care got up to testify, she said this kid lived in a very dysfunctional home, that he was very violent, physically violent to his mother in his middle school years at the age of 12. The mother was, the case manager said, ill-equipped to take care of these two kids. The other brother was younger and had been adopted a little bit afterwards, but the case manager witnessed the mother's being bullied by this kid and also very telling physical violence, not only to her, but around the house. He would cut furniture, break windows, break doors. And this was all when he was 12 and 13 and 14. He was incredibly aggressive Mm. explosive and something that just created constant chaos right in the house and she witnessed his own verbal abuse uh, uh, over the mother's verbal abuse over and over and over again and then he gets into middle school things are no better in middle school what are you in middle school 11 12 13 he is having outbursts in the classroom he's getting kicked out of school he's having fights with people in school and he is doing things like pulling fire alarms And of course, his grades are terrible, as you would expect. He does things just to cause disruption in the classroom. 
and he's constantly being kicked out of class. So basically, we know this kid's life was a mess. And early on, he's diagnosed with ADD at one point, and he's diagnosed with another disruptive behavior disorder. And he continues this kind of behavior until he's like kicked out of high school. I've just heard loads and loads of anger up to the age of, you know, 12, 14. What processes were put in place by social welfare or the school? Anything? They had offered him counseling at high school. He didn't want to take the counseling at high school. He's getting older and more combative and disruptive, right? Mm -hmm. And eventually he's making no progress in school. Actually, he's so disruptive in one school, they transfer him to another school. And in the school where they transferred him, they had a testimony from somebody who's over one of those schools, one of his counselors who said, he's an attention-seeking bully. Wow. He wants to be important in front of everybody all the time. They've just moved the problem around. There's some deep trouble there going on. Big time. There, There is. And he's been in mental health care and controls okay. since right. he was adopted. And this case workers are checking on him. And he's constantly interacting with school counselors and the mental health care that you could potentially get there. But whatever it is, it's all kind of short term. We'll deal with the issue right now. He doesn't want any help. He doesn't want to take any medication. And it's just what you said. It kind of gets passed along. Okay, he's having trouble in this uh, school. We'll just transfer him to another school. And presumably he ends up at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas at some stage. Is that the last school that he ends up in? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So that's yeah. why he's gone back there because, you know, school shooters go back to the same school, don't they? Exactly. That is what we see, right? School shooters go back to their own school. So he's going back to familiar territory. Uh, the shooting happens in February. In the nine months or so before that, his internet searches, which are obtained later on, text messages and things like that, show that he begins to decide, I hate everybody. And he has all these entries. I'm going to kill myself. I want to kill people. I want to kill myself and kill people. I hate everybody. So he's angry, rage filled, and has no outlet for it. Nowhere to go, no idea what he's going to do. So the searches turn to Columbine High School, Christchurch. I want to be a killer. I want to be a school shooter. Top 10 school shootings, da 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 da. And he begins to search online for months and months. He's searching and he's reading on the internet everything there is to read about school shooters. And presumably nobody finds this out till after the fact. Correct. Nobody finds this out until after the fact. Was there a moment along the way that you thought, wow, if only somebody could have done this, it would have stopped it at that point. Is there anything in this case? All right. I'm going to give you two solutions that I'm making up off the top of my head. Thank you. One of them is in most schools, and I think in a lot of countries, you go through the same school system or you transfer once. I would very much like to see a file that's attached to a person. Why we have a school record attached to a person and that school record doesn't also include a file specifically for mental health concerns. That's what the concept of a threat assessment team is. And I would wager to say that a school district would say, we have that. We have a file for the kid and stuff gets into it. Well, that's true. I know that because I've done background investigations for the FBI. And when we would do a background investigation, if you wanted a top secret clearance in the FBI, we would go to your elementary school and we would ask them to pull your files, your physical file and see what's in it. And we'd go to your high school and your junior high and your college. And we go and physically look at your file and what's in it. So it's really a question of what ends up in that file. So one thing I'd like to see is I would like that file to be a better repository and known repository for concerns about the welfare of a person, not just their grades, but the welfare of a person. 
I'm sure that because of privacy concerns, there's all the ideas of, oh, you can't say this kid is adopted or his mom is an alcoholic. You can in a file. Absolutely. And if somebody's charged with those files, if you're in an elementary school and you're charged with 50 kids, that's the other thing, of course, all our counselors are overwhelmed in our schools here and they don't have time to talk to all the kids or see all the kids. But if every child's file is attached to somebody who can look at it over time and not for grades, but look at it for the child's welfare, whether they have problems, when's the last time anybody ever talked to this kid? When's the last time anybody checked to see if he was doing okay in school or why he quit the basketball team? Nobody asks that question so often. And if we spent more time on the welfare of a child, I think that would be one big thing that would really help because no one would drop off the table. And I see this kid that we're talking about today as a kid who dropped off the table. He had so many problems and they didn't know what else to do. And it reminds me of the Sandy Hook shooter where he had troubles, clearly had issues with mental wellness. And his mom was doing the best job that she could do at that time, given whatever her circumstances were. She died of pneumonia shortly before the shooting. So, I mean, there's no attachment there to a lot of people and having somebody to attach to in your school environment, in your neighborhood environment, whatever that might be, might make a difference. I think that's one big thing that would make a difference, but we don't have a mechanism to do that now. That frustrates me because we don't have a way to catch somebody. We have no safety net underneath them. I love that idea. And you know, you think about $125 million paid out by the government after the fact, how many school counselors that could fund? It's just a horrible cycle that's going around and around. Exactly. And you know what? That's why I bring up the lawsuits. That's not the legal time, the lawyer's times, all the time in court, all of that costs money too. All those lawyers got paid for four years to come up with those settlements or three years or whatever. So it is worth it to invest in more counseling in schools. I mean, we've seen it as well in the episode we did with Molly Hudgens from the Saving Sycamore episode. She was a school counselor that recognized a student in crisis and If there hadn't been funding for her in the school, then it could have been a completely different outcome. Exactly. I think that's a great observation. We saw how it works in Saving Sycamore. We saw it with Molly and we saw how it didn't work here and in so many other cases. And so I would say that the second thing is that behavioral health has the concept of threat assessment teams. And I would say that very few school districts successfully run threat assessment teams in their schools. And I think that's unfortunate. I think there are some fantastic models, Oregon, uh, Columbine uh, School District, which is uh, Jeffco. There are some Virginia schools that have great threat assessment teams that are put together, but I don't think that there's an understanding of what they are. And we're asking a lot of people who are paid educators to suddenly be predictive analysis of, of violence. And that is really, that's a tough nut to crack. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, <laughs> but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. 
Come play with us. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Maholovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. The killer left the school, as I mentioned, and was arrested, but then didn't plead guilty until October. So here, the trial itself on whether you're guilty or innocent is held separately than the sentencing. So you don't get sentenced the day that you get found guilty or not. After he pled guilty, then there is a pre-sentencing investigation that's done, and each side is allowed to bring up witnesses. So in the case of this subject, he's facing two options, life in prison without parole or the death penalty. What does the death penalty look like in Florida? I mean, there are different states, different ways. There's one state that just recently reinstated the firearm squad. What? Yes. And there was somebody who chose that, right? But most states that have the death penalty have gone through um, various, you know, electric chair, and then they'd have like a failure of the electric chair, and then there'd be a big issue with that. And then there'd be lawsuits. So a lot of states, the death penalty means that they give you a series of drugs that just kills you. Lay on a table, they give you a series of drugs, and you die. Painlessly, just go to sleep or no? Well, that's part of the controversy, right? Our constitution says you can't deliver cruel and unusual punishment. So somebody who's lost their only child says, yeah, I want him to die a painful death. But in the United States, you still have a right as a citizen. And causing you pain as they kill you, is that cruel and unusual punishment? So even the death penalty is controversial here in the United States. Yeah, I'm sure the death penalty is controversial everywhere I've ever had it. I want to tell you about the sentencing. The subject is evaluated for mental health care and to determine whether or not he needs psychiatric care. And several psychologists will interview him. But I will tell you that this trial had 12 days of testimony. No, that's just testimony. So it fits into the Monday through Friday, 12 days of testimony on sentencing and 91 witnesses presented just on the state side. So 91 people, psychologists, psychiatrists, you know, neighbors, people who were injured, family members who had children who were killed, school officials, anybody who was subpoenaed. Was there any revelations that came out of that? I think some of the things that I mentioned to you before, we would not have heard otherwise. The fact that, for instance, one of the counselors who came up and said he was an attention-seeking bully, that was a statement made during the sentencing hearing. Mm -hmm. When they brought the young lady up who had been the behavioral health uh, counselor who had come to the home and said, well, you know, I saw the mother was clearly overwhelmed. She had been like beaten by a vacuum hose. Uh, He had pushed her around and that anytime anything didn't go his way, he just blew into this rage. So all of that kind of testimony really comes out in the sentencing. So all that stuff goes onto the record. And after 91 witnesses and 12 days of testimony, then the defense brings its testimony up. So what is the defense looking for at this point? Oh, right. I don't know. Any loophole to soften the blow to make him look like he's not 
horrific. Right. And their ultimate goal? Well, there's only two options. So to get them off the death sentence. Right. To get them off the death sentence. Right. There's only two options. Absolutely. They come in and they bring in nine additional days of testimony. 24 people who come in to testify that, you know, this really wasn't his fault, even though he pled guilty. And when he pled guilty, he said he was sorry he did it, but it just really wasn't his fault. Life just dealt him a bad hand. That's where the testimony comes out that his mother was a drug addict and alcoholic and how he was bullied in school. People didn't understand him and how he had a girlfriend and she broke up with him. And the girlfriend, he actually says that they caused him to do this, which I say that because we've heard that before. And you think about who's sitting in the courtroom listening to that, the parents. Right. All those parents are sitting in there listening to him say, I was just really dealt a bad hand in life. Lots of people are dealt a bad hand and they don't go around and take out innocent kids and adults in schools. So this is a jury and a jury of 12. And as long as the defense counsel can convince one person, one person that the death penalty is not appropriate, then the subject is sentenced to life without parole. And so it has to be unanimous. That's the unanimous. And, you know, for some people, there's such a visceral aspect of the death penalty. And Mm. some people are so against it. Some people are so eye for an eye for it. And so that will sway maybe what they want. Either way, I think we have a subject who is never getting out of jail again. He was 19 at the time, 20, 21, 22, 23 years old, maybe 23 years old. And, you know, this whole rest of his life is going to be in jail. Have any of the victims' families been vocal on which way they want the trial to go? Yeah, there are so many voices and opinions. There are 50 people involved in some of these civil actions. So absolutely, there are people who want this person sentenced to death. They're so hurt and so angry and they want this person sentenced to death. They don't want him to be on earth anymore. And then there are some who do not believe in the death penalty and they want him to suffer in prison for the rest of his life. And maybe in their mind, certainly an equal punishment is that you kill him without pain and he's gone. I want you to live through the same pain that I've lived through since you took my child X number of years ago. And Yeah. I think the sad thing about that is whatever side you fall on, some of those victims' parents are not going to be satisfied with the answer and that's less closure for them. And that's just another bitter pill to swallow. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I wanted to mention one other thing. When we talk about firearms, which always seems to come up after Parkland, I told you that the students became very active. So two interesting things happened that almost are opposite. Well, maybe, maybe not, but firearms and firearms laws is very complicated here in the United States. There are lots of variables. So after Parkland, the state of Florida passed a comprehensive set of bills. They passed these in March of 18, which means they passed them immediately. They passed this act raising the minimum age for buying a rifle to 21. Okay. That's a positive step, I would imagine. So you can buy a rifle in the United States at 18. Many places you can't buy a handgun, but you buy a rifle. And many of our shooters we see who are under the age of 21 have legally purchased handguns. We saw that in Buffalo. We saw that in so many others. And the student activists went to Washington right away. And they said, we demand these changes in the firearms laws. And the federal government did passed firearms laws and a package of them, which we spoke about in one of our other episodes. Mm-hmm, it did. did not include this raise to 21 because that was controversial, right? But in Florida, they did pass their law that said 
the minimum age for buying a rifle was raised to 21. And they established some waiting periods and some background checks and banned some types of pieces of weapons and talked about how they were going to bar mentally unstable or unhealthy people from being able to purchase weapons. A lot of the language was aspirational and, you know, the devil's in the detail. So we'll see whether or not this idea of we're going to better control who gets a gun based on their mental health care and see whether or not people who are mentally unhealthy, whatever that means, arrested under certain laws might not be allowed to possess a gun anymore. I think that there's two parts to it that I just would add. It's like, we'll see. Now, I've heard other people say, Florida set the stage. This is the best package of laws. Well, you know, I would like to see it applied. They put $400 million on the table and said, use this money to do some of these things. If those changes are made to support the mental health care and the prevention efforts in the schools, great. But one of the other things that they did is they required by law that every school has to have at least one person with a gun in the school. Ooh, okay. Yeah, that, that's an interesting twist in it. I wasn't expecting yeah. that one. Yeah, I was just holding the best for last. So how do you feel that, about that? Is that what the students advocated for? They did not. I mean, no, some I can't of them imagine do. Some that's... of them do. Okay, right. Um, yeah, well, okay. Interesting logic. I mean, we don't know, do we, how that's going to pan out. I remember talking to Frank DeAngelis, the Columbine High School principal. And the one thing that really stuck in my mind, and both my parents are teachers, one's a high school principal, one's a music teacher. And when he said, if I had a gun in that situation, I would not have been able to shoot that student. And that really stuck with me. What's your feeling on that one? You've seen it all now. Well, I was kind of holding that. I mean, I wanted to talk about the firearms law just for that point. I wanted you to hear that. Because, you know, again, I think it's something that we don't really have an answer to. And I think anybody who is an advocate for that is going to say, you've got a gun in the school. That's great. But I told you there was an SRO at the school who was later fired because he never went into the school. And in fact, you can watch the video coverage of him standing outside the school and he was armed. I think that it's probably no surprise that I'm obviously concerned about people carrying guns into schools. I don't know that I would be comfortable knowing that there might be a person who says they have training. On the other hand, the Florida law says, oh, you have to have all this training. And it could be a teacher. It could be an administrator. It could be the lunch lady who's carrying a weapon. I mean, it's just kind of frightening. And I think once we see some of those guns discharged, potentially, that don't have anything to do with school shooters, you know, then there will be red flags raised. I mean, I don't know that a teacher like Frank or a principal could raise a gun to a student. It just seems like there's a lot of human error that could go wrong in that process. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We know that this sentence is going to come to a close and there's only two options. What's going to happen with each of those pathways? So what happens when he gets sentenced to death? Oh, well, if he gets sentenced to death, which we'll have an answer to probably before this airs, then there'll be a series of appeals probably. That's what happens. Even if somebody is sentenced in a death sentence, then the defense counsel looks over the record, says, is there any error that was made in this trial that I can appeal? There's a whole process to do that. They appeal the trial. No one in the United States who's on death row dies shortly. Those days are gone. It used to be that they would be killed pretty promptly. Now there's always a question of, did they receive due process? And that's what will occur. 
On the other hand, if he is sentenced to life without parole, there will still probably be an appeal, but it would be for the same reason of potentially to preserve the record. You know, maybe he gets a potential for parole or something, but as far as it is right now, that's not on the table. So really the appeal process will be part of if he's sentenced to death. And Florida is pretty aggressive when it comes to the death penalty. What's your gut feeling on it? You know, it's very hard. Obviously, it's hard to predict. When it's a young person, a 23-year-old, I think that maybe a little bit telling is I think that this person will get the death penalty. But I think that one of the reasons will be because although the defense team has done a good job of showing how he was victimized and bullied in their mind, you know, he tried to create that image, whether he was or he wasn't as a younger person. But about eight months after he was arrested and in jail, he was in a room with another guard sitting at a table and he launched off over the table and into the guard and attacked the guard in a very violent assault on this guard, even though they were inside of a locked facility. And he was, in fact, convicted of that crime while he was in jail. Evidence of that came out at the sentencing hearing. He's a kid who has anger issues that are not going to go away. So that makes me think that he probably will get that sentence. We try to end these sometimes with a positive thought. And I wanted to tell you about somebody named Sarah Lerner. She was a teacher at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. And if you want to know what it's like to live in this environment and to better understand what these people go through so you can provide better support for survivors and the victims... I would urge you to look up a book and buy a copy of a book called Parkland Speaks. Sarah Lerner edited the book Parkland Speaks by gathering together poems and drawings and writings, commentaries, and things that were written by people from Parkland itself and done Uh pretty quickly after this occurred. She put the book out a few years ago as a cathartic way for people there to um, express how they feel. But I think it also could help any of us who have not been inside of a school during a school shooting to understand, you know, how to better relate to people who are dealing with violence. I would definitely put a link to that in the show notes. So if anyone wants to find it, you can just go into the show notes and click the link. There's so many stories of people who did great things, right? There was the geography teacher who was killed after he unlocked a classroom door to let students enter and hide from the shooter. His name was Scott Beagle. There was an assistant football coach and a security guard who was killed when he shielded two students. His name was Aaron Feist. And I love this person for a couple of reasons. Peter Wang was last seen in his junior reserve officer's training corps, JROTC uniform, holding doors open. So others could flee. Oh, just chill went right through my body. Go so Peter. he was killed. He was 15. And to think to hold the door for other people in that crisis. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. What a human yeah. he would have turned out to be. Exactly. I know. I just wanted to share that with you because there were so many others who moved and crawled and protected other people. But I just thought, especially for that story about Peter Wang. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. 
Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to Community Podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it because it will happen and it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. If you're enjoying Stop the Killing, check out more podcasts from Community Podcast Productions, like this one. Something is creeping in, don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now, you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son, who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.